Dear Ryan, I find myself here, reclined in my hammock, the end of hard day's labor setting booby traps on the eastern edge of the island to catch the fucking tourists. Received your thought-provoking second letter today, and I do have some responses to give, though I fear they may not be directly in line with your thinking. Hopefully they may contribute in some way to furthering a conversation, be it or not the one you wish you were having in traditional American fashion, you'll have to take what you can get. part was probably the analogy between the instability created in an atomic system under increased energy load and the instability potentially creatable in a society or population under an influx of dangerous memes. But, saving that for later, I'm not sure that I'm properly grokking your main point, your thesis. You say, my point is the externalities we face today, living in a civilization, or as George Costanza would have it, a society, are probably similar to those we faced as foragers, but we are no longer foragers. And you say that we morph into mutineers when we enter this phase called being in a society or civilization, which I think we are those terms I'm to interpret as synonymous for the purposes of this letter. And then you wrap up by saying that the horse that you are beating is, quote, we are all mutineers because we live in a society. And that's the part that I'm not even sure the extent to which I agree with or disagree with because I don't think that I appreciate the thrust of what it is that you are even claiming here. And I have a guess at a diagnosis of why. And it might have to do with that old Doddler's chestnut, the triumph about overseers, game players, and truth seekers. But that you seem to have a primary mode of participating in intellectual discussions as a game player. And I think that my default primary mode for engaging in these intellectual conversations, I just use that term to differentiate them from other conversation types that there might be, for example, joking around, making small talk, shooting the shit, you know, these other ways modes of conversation. There's also these things that we could characterize 
italicize that word for later, as quote-unquote intellectual conversations. So when we're doing that activity, I tend to engage in them from this overseer's perspective. Well, what the hell is that? As you were being indulgent, apparently, in your letter, I'm going to indulge in a little bit of both talking about how I see overseeing, and then attempt to exhibit some oversight upon this conversation. As I currently see it, one way to describe what overseers tend to do is ask three famous questions. Who, what, what, and why? When, when considering some claim, one could ask the questions, who is making this claim? What are you claiming? And then why do they make the claim slash why should we care about or even go so far as to accept the conclusions of said claim? And that's why us overseers, if I may be so bold, tend to participate in a lot of endeavors characterized as philosophies of. Some of the domains that apply to who questions would be like philosophy of mind, psychology, behavioral economics, cognitive science, neuroscience, perhaps evolutionary biology or psychology, if you adopt those. What questions are the domain of philosophy of language, semantics, pragmatics in the Persian, semiotic sense, lexicography, etc.? And why questions might be the domain of things like argumentation theory, the study of reason itself, logic, rhetoric, existential concerns, evidence, or pragmatics in the Jamesian sense. People like Korzybski, Wittgenstein, Quine, and I seem to be obsessed with this point or claim of our own that every claim of which we are aware, is made by some or other agent in some or other language. And that facts about both of those are inherently embedded in and constitutive of the claim itself. And to ignore those higher-level aspects is to miss something that at least we care about, and at most something necessary for saying something interesting. When Wittgenstein said, the limits of my language are the limits of my world, I think what he was saying applies to these hardcore gamers, game players. The limitations of my game rules are the limits of my concerns. And as Korzybski will constantly try to get us to keep in mind, whatever rule set you operate within structures your behaviors, at least during that time that you are successfully operating within those game rules. You are parentheses, unparentheses, self-constrained from doing, saying anything that is considered from within that game, out of bounds. I think that game players 
many, if not most, scientists included, tend to make some important assumptions, including the relevant audience to this linguistic action not only is familiar with a given vocabulary and set of models, but also, in some important sense, epistemologically stands in a relationship of acceptance of said vocabulary and model set, even if it is somehow mitigated. And at least the way I do the overseeing thing, or play the overseeing game, if you will, strives not to do that. All right, anyway, those lengthy preliminaries out of the way. Let's circle back around to the claim in question here that I might want to try to exemplify a little bit of overseeing about. We are all mutineers, part two, because we live in a society. So that's, you could look at that as two claims or one compound claim, whatever you want to do. I'm just going to riff about this for a while and let you have a view into the inner workings of the Harland brain when I was listening to your letter. The first place that I went was to wordplay, as often. I hear, we live in a complex society, and my brain's like, what? I don't know about that, but uh, what is something similar that I could agree with? And then it said, we live in a context, so I see. And if I can make that transformation make sense, I will have at least achieved something, I think. We live in a context, so I see. Then I make an analogy between that and the famous Cartesian cogito, translated into English typically as, I think, therefore, I am. Which is something that I have in the past disagreed with and still do. And the way to go about figuring out how to attempt to deny that which seems so self-evident to so many. This, you have to be on, I think, the overseer level. I think, therefore, I am, needs a little bit of, if I'm doing this right, postmodernist deconstruction done on it, you know. So one thing that you could look at in that case is, well, all right, it's in this English translation into a language that has this sort of essentialist, Aristotelian, Kantian, subject-predicate rhetoric, where first you have the thing, the res cogitans, the thinking thing, which then engages in action. It's ontology first. It privileges ontology, the subject. And then, you know, first there was the, the cogitans, and then on the second day, it thought. And when it thought, it blah, blah, blah. And here I need, I feel I need to take a miniature timeout because I hear the audience piping up to say, no, the thinking thing is the first part. It's I think, and that's what gives you the I am. But I'm saying, no, break that even further down. When you get to the 
grammatical aspects of the English sentence, it still goes subject verb. First, there's the I, which is the subject and has to have some sort of ontological standing before it can do, before it can think. You have I think. It's not thinking first. Once one makes the shift from Aristotle and Kant, dogmatic epistemology and essentialist ontology into a more existentialist pragmatist frame, which is outside the scope of this letter, but has been in, talked about in previous episodes, probably future episodes of the Doddler's philosophy, then you can instead privilege what I still tend to think is the most agreeable premise of all time. Stuff happens. If we start there, we start with stuff happens, we go next to what I wanted to stress earlier in this letter, the magical tool that humans have developed, and as far as we know so far, only humans, poke the bear, characterization. To exemplify the power of the magic of characterization, I want to reference a meme that you sent me the other week. It's about Star Wars, you know, because you apparently grew up on Star Wars and kind of like it or whatever, but it characterizes Luke Skywalker in a different way and that and the plot of that series in a different way. It reads, Star Wars, the story of an orphaned boy who becomes radicalized after a military strike kills his family. He's indoctrinated into an ancient religion, joins a band of rebel insurgents, and carries out a terrorist attack, killing 300,000 people. And that's Luke Skywalker and the, I suppose, when he blew up the Death Star, whatever the fuck happens, I don't know, Star Wars, whatever. That's not how most people in America 2021 think about the plot of Star Wars or the character of Luke Skywalker. However, when characterized as such, most of us can make that shift into saying, oh, yeah, I get it. I see how it kind of is that way. Boy, that makes you see it differently. And I think that's where another perspective shift comes in that's emphasized by people like Dan Dennett and friend of the podcast, Keith Frankish, when they are asking us to consider the possibility that the way quote-unquote minds or the putative consciousness works is that we see things is the subject-predicate Aristotelian style, what I want to call the old-fashioned way of looking at the situation. And then we interpret what we see. First, there is the self, the I. It does a verb, seeing. Subsequently to that, in time and space, might come an interpretation and even a characterization into the English language or whatever. But it's based on the sense data that we're supposed to have 
prior to any characterization. But as I understand it, the Denetian school, which I think is highly acceptable to at least the two of us, it doesn't necessarily go that way. Maybe it's characterizations all the way down. Maybe there is nothing prior to a characterization, even if the quote-unquote first one is just done by the Darwinian hardware chimpy primate layer. Remember that perspective shift request from Alan Watts about how the universe peoples that he emphasizes how our culture and language usually talks about how we are born into the universe or something like that rather than grow out of it or merely just participate in it or a sub-system within this more complex one. I'm trying to tie together a set of components to help my audience here, dear Ryan, conceptualize a bit about how I'm interpreting this wordplay pseudo-claim, we live in a context, so I see. It's not that I see that I live in a context, or I live, or any of that, but rather that the context is first, the stuff happens is first. Then the characterization persuades a population to agree to say we all live in a context. Is any of that making sense? That one way to view that would be first there's you and me and we look around and we notice hey there's a context out there. And that's how I think English as a language does it and I think that's how most 21st century earthlings do it. But that if you really look for the best available arguments, you will eventually become pushed into the position that first is the context, and it's due to that, to this participation within the whole, that persuades us to characterize things as there being a we which sees. And then I went to the whole Lakoff embodied metaphors thing where you look at the preposition in. We live in a society as though it were some sort of container that we are inside of physically. But let's not spend too much time on that right now. Lest this letter become unwieldy long. Because another thing that I wanted to talk about that this evoked in me was Jim Jeffries. When you're on an airplane, there's a thing called plane etiquette, and it goes like this. Window gets an armrest and a wall. Middle gets two armrests. Aisle gets an armrest and a little bit of extra leg. We're not fucking animals, we live in a society. 
well aware that I'm doing some irresponsible hermeneutics here and taking this out of the type of conversation that that language act was meant to be and interpret it in a different frame. Yes, we are animals. No, we don't live in a society. And that led me down a rabbit hole to a previous conversation that we once had with a mutual friend who shall remain nameless as he or she enjoys their privacy. Recall when we were having a discussion of the term rights. And I was unsurprisingly arguing the position that we ought not believe in any version of natural rights. As part of my argument, I asked the audience to consider the hypothetical where there was where there were two people on a deserted island. Luckily, I'm the only one here right now because my traps have so far been successful and nobody's made it past the beach. Thank dog. Oh, I think I just got another one. Sweet. So anyway, one of the denizens of this island has a really fancy tent they built out of bamboo and leaves and sticks and they got all their little goodies in there. There's like a little sauna. There's a nice little hot rock they got there. There's fireplace. It's really some good stuff. And he's got the best little hand axe on the entire island. And he's got these great tools. He's got the best tools. But then there's the other person on the island comes when that one is out hunting, say, just straight up occupies the abode. Starts using tools and they're cooking a salmon when the previous occupant returns. Say occupant one, the person who built it, tries to make some sort of rights-based argument for their ownership of the hut. This is mine. You have no right to be here, etc., etc. My point is, all that is relevant to adjudicating this situation are the behaviors of these two human beings. End of story. Verbal and otherwise. There is no external force that will impose itself upon this situation and say, I am the rights and remove person two who hijacked the hut. So where are these quote-unquote rights? I don't need to include them in my model in order to explain and predict the situation. And if I do attempt to include them in a model of the situation, they quite quickly become Occamized because it's obviously extraneous metaphysics and there's no evidence that I'm aware of or arguments for their inclusion. And so we chop them off and we say, oh, okay, I guess rights don't exist in this situation. So back to Jeffries on the airplane, when he wants there to be these game rules of how airplane passenger body positions are arranged, when it comes down to it, the way, the places people put their elbows 
is not determined by the fact that, quote-unquote, we live in a society. That is a possible characterization of the situation. But when we do some epistemology, do, are there good reasons to include the living in a society as part of our model of the airplane situation? If your neighbor so chooses, they can encroach upon your armrest, and there's nothing about... And if part of the explanation of why they don't, won't, can't, or will be moved if they were to do it, is cashed out in terms of the characterization of those agents co-occupying a container we characterize as a society, then I'm going to need to know a lot of details about the definition of what it takes to constitute a society and then why I should agree that choosing to characterize this situation as within a society container is beneficial to me when doing my modeling. This is a longer way of saying, of attempting to get around to the place with which you're probably unfortunately and frustratingly familiar coming from me right now, where you come up with something that's probably meaningful and useful and plays by the rules of some game that I am not properly participating with you in, this is the long way of saying, okay, you are claiming that we are all mutineers because we live in a complex society, and I'm like, um, I don't know what you mean. What is it to be a mutineer? What is a complex society? And why do you claim we live in it? You are now allowed to tear your hair out. Your rearranger in a deranged land. Harland, just how you described Grant.